Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Illick, and this is Raven Drool, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s can rock. In this episode, I speak with Shane Ward of Chilliwack, British Columbia's Mystery Machine. So, um, Chilliwack, at what point did you guys relocate? Did you guys always stay in Chilliwack, or did you uh, move to Vancouver in 1990 to kind of do the band thing full-time? I think I moved in first. I think I moved in to Vancouver in 92. I think right after... Because when we made when we made Glazed, we were still living in Chilliwack. Like when we actually made the record, we were still in Chilliwack. Because um, I recall Network putting us up in hotels in the city, so we were kind of just living in hotels when we were making Glazed. The first one we got kicked out of. We were staying, and we wanted to stay at the diviest place. We insisted on the diviest place that they could put us in, <laughs> and. Uh, which was the ho- at the time the Hotel California on Granville, right downtown. And we managed to get kicked out of that by like the second night, I think. So they, they put us in at a slightly nicer place after that. And and despite our best efforts, we did not get kicked out of that hotel. So Well, slow down a bit. How, 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 what were the efforts that, that it did uh, get the kicked out successfully out of the first hotel? What did you guys all do? I, I wasn't, it wasn't for much really, like as I recall, I think it was just guests at strange hours <laughs> and just our general lifestyle i think was you know we were kind of operating at a on a different clock than lots of people were so not keeping normal hours so what uh let's dial back a bit and, and, and uh, talk a little bit about what led to the making of glazed um describe kind of the vancouver it must have been a, an amazing time 1990 91 like living in chilliwack so close to vancouver with Seattle, so close to Vancouver, and all these Canadian bands come up at the same time. Can you describe what it was like to be a young music fan in, like, 1990 in Vancouver, man? It was amazing, really. Like, being on the West Coast, that was, we were pretty lucky. Saw Nirvana a bunch of times real early. I think the first time I saw Nirvana was uh, was when they opened for Sonic Youth at a place called the New York Theater. And that was with... Uh, uh, his name escapes me right now, but it's the drummer for the Melvins was playing with Nirvana at the time. Hmm. Um, so that was pre Dave Grohl. And then I saw Nirvana again, open for the screaming trees at the Commodore. And then I saw them headline once at the Commodore too. So it played up pretty regularly. I mean, we were also fans of, uh, of slow who were from Vancouver who just recently reunited. Yep. Because they were kind of, it, it was kind of the same. Like there was, there was a whole lot of crossover stuff happening at the time. There was, there was still metal kind of leaking through stuff, but then bands were starting to go a little more punk. I think that's kind of where that whole grunge thing kind of comes from too. There's definitely like a, as much as a lot of those bands would probably want to deny it, there's definitely a metal streak that runs through a lot of them. I mean, more so with like bands like Soundgarden and Alice in Chains, but. You know, I think there was a melding of a bunch of sounds happening at that time. It was a really, it was a great scene to, to. I mean, uh, there was a lot of shows that I missed, of course, because I wasn't quite old enough yet. I mean, that scene was really kind of bursting at about 88, 89, when a lot of those bands really started to to hit. I was really into, group. we were all in, into Green River. Oh, I know. And they, of course, like, broke up and formed into uh, Mudhoney and uh, 
Mother Love Bone, who became Pearl Jam. And did you see Mother Love Bone play? No, that again, that was a, like a, just a little before my time. I think they broke up before before I was even out of high school. Like we we graduated. Well, me and Lou graduated in '89, so we didn't. We missed some of those early early things like Slow. We never got to see back when they were still going and. And missed some great shows. I remember the Chili Peppers and uh, Fishbone used to tour together a lot, and they'd play the the Commodore, and we were just a little bit too young. We got carded. Me and Luke did the first time we tried to go see Nirvana at uh, the Town Pump. We were just 18. <laughs> did our best, though. We tried. <laughs> well, at least you got to see him a few more times. So that worked out we great. did, yeah. I did see him a few times. They, they were just an amazing live band. I mean, it's, it's funny looking back now, watching the, the footage of them, just how sloppy and kind of messy they are but they were so powerful live it's you know, they were quite a thing to behold for sure but it was a, it was a really creative time in in the whole area in vancouver as well like there was so many so many bands doing really interesting things it, it was a time where if you didn't bring something like really different and like you you really had to bring your a game to to break through because there was just so much creative stuff happening. You know, there was uh, like Superconductor were around and Lung and, you know, there was all these really great local bands that were, that were really tearing it up locally. It's just unfortunate that Vancouver didn't get, I mean, I guess it's fortunate and unfortunate, but it, that it never really got swept up in that Seattle thing. Cause the bands were all kind of coming from the same place really. But that that mania hysteria didn't really come to Vancouver, so a lot of those bands just kind of got got forgotten through the ages. And when we got new pornographers, which is kind of a result from that from those bands, but you know that all those bands at the time really just kind of came and went, and that was it. But we were all part of the same scene. You know, Tad came up all the time. It was great seeing Tad play all the time, and it was also weird having your little your little scene kind of like get swept away by this you know this big tidal wave of fame and all that yeah it would have to be it would have to be bizarre have you seen that documentary hype about how seattle was affected with uh all that mania i have yeah actually our i think our uh our our, our card made it into that there was a, <laughs> nice. a card set that uh it was, there was a, a show called bomb shelter videos that used to be on it like 4 a.m. on Thursdays or something, and it came out of Seattle. It's actually where I heard of a lot of a lot of, of those bands. And uh, the guy that did that show years later, I guess it was probably '93 or something. He did a like a Pacific Northwest card set, and uh, and Tad was in there, and there was a few notable bands in there. But we were in there, and in that movie Hype, they're going through the cards, and you'd see our card for a couple seconds there. So we we weaseled our way into that. One more, one more Seattle question before I we, we change topic. Yeah. Uh, I must ask this because they are my band, uh, Pearl Jam. Did you see them in when Eddie was going nuts in like 1991? We we opened for Pearl Jam right as they broke. No way. It was kind of odd. Like to be honest, I wasn't like I've kind of softened my stance on Pearl Jam. You know, I think if you're a Green River fan, you either you, I mean for me anyway, you kind of had to pick sides. That's how I thought, and I, and I went. <laughs> I went mud honey, but I have, like I said, I've softened my stance on Pearl Jam over the years. I do have like, uh, you know, great respect for, for them. 
Um, but yeah, we opened for them. It was, it's funny. It was supposed to be at the town pump, which is, you know, kind of like a Commodore junior. It was like where you played before you hit the big room, you know, it's like a five, 600 seat place. And so we got asked to open for Pearl Jam. And so the show was coming up and then all of a sudden they blew up like huge, like blew up massively. And the show got moved from like a 500 seat venue to, uh, this place called the Plaza of Nations, which is like a five, 6,000 seat outdoor sort of stadium thing in uh, Vancouver. And so, yeah, that was, it was, that was our first, like we, we opened for Fishbone at the Commodore before that. So that was technically like our first big show, but playing to 5,000 people opening for Pearl Jam, that was, that was a, that was a really big one for sure. Were you guys a part of network? Were you guys signed or anything like that? Or is you guys still? We were signed at the time we had signed with them already but the record wasn't out yet so we were pretty like pretty unknown like known locally you know we, we sort of had like you know been playing locally for a while and gaining a bit of a following but yeah I, i'm sure most people that saw us open for pearl jam had never heard of us before so how is that a tough task to oh that was great i mean i think we something we've always done we always play a lot like we practiced Tons. We practiced four or five nights a week, sometimes more. We played all the time. So I never really, it was more, you know, we were always more excited to play big shows than nervous about them. I don't ever recall being, like for me personally anyway, I don't ever really recall being nervous before shows. It was just excited, just excited to get out there and, you know, see what's going to happen. Speaking of live shows, I was perusing the Wikipedia page and confrontational and volatile is the way those early gigs are described for you guys. Uh, can, <laughs> you dive, can you dive a bit into where the people are getting that description from? We like to wreck stuff. We like to break our shit. We would <laughs> tear it up. I mean, I, I think when you're playing a show and we would, we had our sets pretty carefully designed to sort of, uh, to kind of get more intense as you go to build the intensity. So that by the time you've sort of played your last song, when you build up to that, the only thing you can really do is destroy everything. So that, that was our general, uh, our usual finish to a set would just be to, to level the stage. It's fun. You can't beat it. Do you have any, any, any good photos of the, uh, the carnage or video? The carnage? Um, there is a photo, I believe it's on the inside of Glazed or maybe the back of the album cover. I'm not sure. But it's the aftermath of recording Stainmaster, the last song on Glazed. And there's kind of debris everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. There's not a lot of pictures of that time period, really. Like, there's just not a lot of photographic evidence of it. I mean, just, just thinking about, like, playing with Pearl Jam and, and Fishbone, these bands that we played with, there's no photos. I mean, I'm sure there's, that photos exist, but I've never seen any. It's just not a very well-documented decade, which is why, you know, this is great. I mean, it's there's just not a lot of photographic evidence. And, and in a lot of cases, a lot of these bands never got recorded either. So there's no recorded evidence of these bands existing. It's just, you know, people that saw them remember them, and that's about it. Yeah, it was a lot tougher back then before technology really took that turn. Absolutely. You had to know somebody with an 8-track or rent an eight track and then you had to find someone that knew how to run it and, <laughs> yeah i mean we we made a couple of demos that we sold around cholak and stuff before we got signed and that that was it you know 
we know a guy with an eight track and he kind of knows how to use it. So let's <laughs> record six or seven songs and Bean would go off to the, to the high school and we'd print out some photo sleeves and, you know, you got yourself a, a demo you can sell around town. Speaking of Bean, where, where does the nickname come from? I honestly don't know. I, uh, I don't know where it came from. Um, it was like, there was two, two main high schools in the Chilliwack area and me and Luke went to one. We went to Sardis secondary and Bean and Jordan went to Chilliwack. So we were both separately in bands. Me and Luke played in bands out of Sardis and played with other guys that we went to school with. And then I know Bean and Jordan were kind of doing the same thing at Chilliwack senior, just sort of, you know, playing in this band, that band, whatever. And I think eventually we just got to a point that we were like, hey, you guys are still, you know, doing this and we're still doing this. And we recruited Bean first, I think. Jordan was a bit of a tougher sell. <laughs> yeah, it took a lot of work to get Jordan in the band, like a lot of lies and trickery. <laughs> Example? Um, well, I mean, he was obviously the best drummer in town, like by a mile. I think he's one of the, the best drummers ever. He's just a phenomenal player. Luke made up a show. I mean, it was kind of the reason it worked, I think, is because there was a tiny bit of truth through it. We were, we were trying to get a show at a place called the Paramount in New West because we saw they were doing shows and we'd gone down and seen Testament play there and the Sons of Freedom play there. So oh, we knew yeah. it was a place you could play. So Luke used that guy's name and said that he was organizing a show. And I think it was supposed to be like No Means No and like a bunch of really cool Vancouver bands. So he concocted this ruse of this show. So we were on the bill of the show that didn't exist, um, but we <laughs> didn't really have a band together. So it allowed us to accelerate the formation of the band. Nice. And then we only found out, because I didn't know he was lying about it either. He was lying to all <laughs> of us. And so we didn't find out about this lie until I think it was the night we won Shindig. We won uh, CITR, UBC Radio, Battle of the Bands in 91, I think. And it was after, it was the night that we won during the uh, celebrations that Luke uh, uh, divulged that he had created this this show that uh, that helped us get Jordan in the band. <laughs> so, you know, it worked out in the end. Yeah, absolutely. And what was the uh, the first prize? It was studio time. I think I think it was 24 hours at Mushroom Studios, and then 24 hours at another studio that we actually never never made it into because negotiations had started with Network by then, and I think we just kind of forgot about it. Oh, so yeah, maybe tell 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 that story. How did Network and, and you guys first took up? There was another. There was a local band called Mary who we had seen open for No Means No, and we'd been chatting with them. And I recall them saying that Rick Arboit from Network was like actively looking for some sort of guitar rock band, and had been for a little while. So I knew that 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 was sort of out out there. Um, as far as how when they came on and what got them to notice us, I'm not really sure. After we won Shindig, 
um, I think it was when we had first contact with them. It's weird. It's so, you know, so long ago. And right, right, right. We smoked, smoking so much weed back then. All pretty, <laughs> it's all pretty hazy. I do recall getting to Mushroom Studios. They're going to give us a little tour and, you know, give us the, the deal on what was going on there. And there was a phone call from Dave Ogilvy, who at the time we, we had no idea who he was. And, and I remember the secretary there just being like, no, this is a really, this is a really great thing. You want to take this call. So we, you know, and then that was, that's how we ended up working with Dave. Cause he, uh, and he had done ministry and uh, skinny puppy after us, he did uh, Marilyn Manson and is an awesome guy. And we worked really well with him and we were very like-minded, got along great. And he, he worked on our first, he worked on Glazed with us. Yeah, as far as when Network came along, I'm not really sure. I do know that they were trying to sign Sloan. And when Sloan signed with Geffen, that's when I think we were like, I think we were plan B. Sloan got away and they got us. That's not a bad option. I'm sure they would have rather had Sloan, I think. <laughs> I'm sure some Sloan are probably easier to deal with than we were. Yeah, you guys are pretty uh, well, I mean, headstrong pretty back agreeable. then. Honestly, we were pretty agreeable. We were really happy to be there. Um, and we were really serious about about the band and about songwriting. But as far as the business goes, we were just straight up fuck ups. We like we we weren't focused on that really. So we weren't like I think they would have loved to have had a band that was really commercially driven and commercially focused and that just wasn't us.
so how difficult was it for you guys to kind of start playing that game, I guess, like the publicity game, you have to start doing interviews now and making videos and, and making appearances. Uh, how, how hard was that for you guys? Uh, it was weird. It was really weird. Like when you're in a band, it doesn't, when, especially when you're in school and you're a band or you're the kind of people that want to be in a band, you're not necessarily like the most popular people. So when you start getting a little notoriety and, and do start entering that world, it's kind of weird. It's a weird transition. Yeah, it's odd. Like I, the first one of the first things I remember network sending us off to do is to play in a celebrity softball game. <laughs> and we, we didn't have a record out. I think, I think someone contacted network and they were like, can you send like Sarah McLaughlin or the grapes of wrath or somebody famous? <laughs> and they got us instead. And I remember, so we don't have a record out. Nobody knows who the fuck we are. Nobody. We show up with a large entourage of our friends who are also all drug riddled fuck ups. <laughs> and we roll in and we're a little late. I think they were, they were out on the field. I think they're just lined up on the field. And so we don't have uniforms or anything, all this long hair <laughs> stoned out of our minds, roll out onto the field. Nobody knows who we are. I don't, I'm sure nobody even knew why we were there. Um, <laughs> We eventually, eventually got kicked out because <laughs> it was afterwards, there's free beer. It was put on by Molson or something. And the voice of He-Man was there. Oh, right. And yeah, it was amazing. So he would do the whole By the Power of Grayskull. We got him to do it over and over and over again. And he was getting progressively more hammered too. So it was <laughs> a lot more entertaining too. But anyway, I do recall um, eventually they did ask us all to leave because I think we we're just a little disruptive and all getting too drunk. But yeah, it's a weird transition to suddenly go from like being sort of the unpopular kids at school to like being the popular kid. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around. I don't think that we were super great at the beginning with all of that, with like interviews, videos were one of those like necessary evils. Being around like fans, there was a learning curve to that too just not used to people liking you i guess so when people first say that they like you you just automatically think that they're just taking the piss <laughs> so it was hard and we all got over it and we got better at all of those things but as far as playing the uh the the, the industry game i i don't think that ever happened i think we failed at that all the way through right to the end interesting yeah and it was to our detriment absolutely just uh, while we're on this topic about being the, the you know the unpopular or not the cool kid and all of a sudden becoming the cool kid rather quickly, I was asked recently on on a podcast somebody was interviewing me about and they said what did you think about you know Kurt Cobain, Kurt Cobain's suicide and, and what did you make of that and you, maybe you have a bit more perspective actually seeing the band and kind of experiencing that even on a smaller level. Yeah, I mean I think that that plays a part. I think definitely like you're suspicious of people. And we dealt with that obviously on a very, very small level, you know, just like people asking for autographs after the show or little things like that. But we still, our, our crowd still, I think, reflected us for the most part, like our fans. 
they were people like us. Whereas when you get really big, like Nirvana got, you, you can't control the people that come to your show. And to appeal to a wide audience like Nirvana did, you've got a lot of different walks of life coming to your show, and you're not necessarily going to like all of those people. And I think a part of it was that the people that were coming to his shows eventually are the same people that probably used to call him a piece of shit and used to, you know, push him down the stairs in high school and shit like that. Like, I, I think there, there's, there's some of that. I mean, I think he, there's probably some serious depression issues going on with him too. You know, I think there was a lot of things with Kurt. I mean, he, he, even at the beginning, the, the earliest shows, he wasn't, he wasn't where he got to later, but he still wasn't like a overly jovial, happy guy. Not that I ever saw. I mean, I never met him or anything. I just saw him play shows and saw him like outside of the clubs and stuff, but never like a super over the top happy guy. But I, I do think that like depression and, and just looking out at your audience and seeing a bunch of fucking dick bags that you you wouldn't want to associate with loving you. Yeah. I'm sure that that probably bothered them too. No, that's a fantastic take on it. I mean I struggled to come up with words that I was just rambling and bumbling to answer the question. Right. But but you did it quite uh, eloquently actually. That's a good insight and I appreciate that. So back to back to Mystery Machine. Um I was looking at your Instagram and, and around that time period you guys played a Lollapalooza? Yeah. It was great. It was amazing. It rained really hard. That's what I mostly remember about that day. Fucking <laughs> poured. Bucketed. Bucketed all day. It rained so hard. It was a fun day. It was interesting. We shared a, the weirdest part of that day. We shared a tent with um, the Jim Rose Circus Sideshow, who were also on the side stage. <laughs> no way. So each, yeah, there was like, I don't know, six bands on the side stage, some bands, whatever there was. But uh, so you'd share a tent. Yeah, there was two bands per tent and they paired us up. I don't, I don't know why they didn't pair us up with like, like the other local band on the bill. So I think it was DSK. Like, why not just throw us in a tent with DSK? We can just hang. But no, we get the Jim Rose Circus Sideshow. And I remember me and Dean walking in on the human pin cushion <laughs> while he was inserting all the pins in his body and he just like slowly turned and said can you please get out he was in this trancey thing and they're cool guys though lifto we hung out with lifto a bunch he was kind of neat it was weird it was weird that was a weird thing hanging out with the jim rose circus sideshow that was odd but yeah i remember it rained a lot i remember that Soundgarden went on stage about halfway through our set so I think we probably started playing to about a thousand people. And then halfway through our set, we were playing to about five or 600 people. <laughs> yeah. And it was hard to get to the other side. I, my, my, honestly, my favorite memory of that day has nothing to do with us playing. It was uh, fighting my way over to where the main stage was, which took forever and getting through the rain down the stairs into the, into the, the lower bowl there finding my friends, getting under a tarp, lighting a joint, and have ministry play super not all at the same like moment. That was that's my that's my favorite moment of that day. It was glorious. <laughs> and that, that that ministry cover of Supernaut is just 
That's, I mean, that's got to be one of the greatest covers of all time. That's it's right up there anyway. I also remember how bad the Chili Peppers were. Really? And I was, yeah, I was a, I was a Chili Peppers fan, like of the early Chili Peppers, like the pre-Mother's Milk Chili right. Peppers. I was fully on board. They were just, it was just like super fast funk, really. And I, and I, I really liked them. And then, so that was my first opportunity to finally see them. And they were fucking terrible. They were terrible. I didn't even stay through the whole set. I maybe stayed for 20 minutes and I had to go. I couldn't take it. They were so bad. They, uh, I think Frusciante just quit for the first time. Oh, really? And so they had some fill-in on guitar and it just wasn't good. It was, it was bad. It was really bad. It sounded like they were all playing different songs. Oh, wow. Yeah, after the initial thing where they come out with the light bulbs on their heads, which was pretty, you know, their show is pretty neat, whatever. And then as soon as they started to play, it was it was not good. I mean, I, I've never gone and tried to see them again. I, I'm sure they're better than that, but I've never given them a chance. And then I haven't liked any records they've made since Mother's Milk, so I didn't feel there was any point. I mean, honestly, there was so much good music happening in the 90s that I'm still going back and discovering bands that I knew of at in those days, but just never really had the chance to like make the deep dive on them. So anything that kind of faltered, I was like, next, there's so <laughs> much more. How much touring did you do off that first record? Did you, you guys are going cross country now? Are you supposed to just kind of uh, surrounding provinces or? We did an early tour with Sloan. We did Western Canada with Sloan. That was really fun. Um, I think change of heart. We're on, couple of those bills too um the first big one we did was going right across canada with pure oh wow cool. vancouver yeah that we got that was we were really spoiled on that tour because they were doing really well at the time and so like our first time across canada every show was pretty much sold out which is very unrealistic because that's not how touring goes generally and we would soon find that out and how did how did you first cope with the um, the traveling of of that? Because Canada is pretty spread out. How did you guys deal with that for the first time? By smoking literally tons of weed, <laughs> tons, so much pot. Yeah, a lot of lot of booze, a lot of weed. I think is how we got through that tour. I mean, part of it was that we were just super excited. Like we'd never been across Canada. I'd been to Toronto. Toronto when I was younger like 11 or 12 I think I'd been to Toronto once but to be able to that whatever age we were 21 20 whatever we were to be able to go across the whole country and see the whole country like that was was amazing I mean there's people live their whole lives without seeing the whole country you know they don't they just see the little town they grew up in so to be exposed to the whole country like that was amazing we were pretty excited we were very wide-eyed and super stoked to, we we're just happy to be there oh yeah so yeah i'm Tell me, it's 
did you guys uh, just kind of stick to Canada on the the cycle of that first record, or did you guys uh, dip your toes in any other markets? We we did some shows in Seattle. I'm not sure if we made it across. I know we played Windsor, which is like you get the Detroit crowd for the Windsor show, but I don't recall if we actually got over to the states on the on on the glazed run i think we must have we must have played we must have at least played detroit we usually did at least like detroit um and then we'd play like toledo maybe buffalo just like the sort of the more the closer sort of border border cities so they say um you have your whole lifetime to write your first record so i'm curious um now going to your second kind of record on a on a on a record label, was there any kind of uh, expectations? Did you kind of feel any kind of pressure? I think so. Yeah, I think it's hard not to, because I mean that's exactly it. You know, they say you got your whole life to write your first record, and then six months to a year to write your second record. So there's pressure there. I mean, Luke being like the main songwriter, I'm sure he felt some heat on that. Absolutely. The time imploded under the weight of it. So I guess yeah, we we did feel the pressure of trying to write a, another record. We we wrote a lot of music. We always wrote. We were always writing new stuff. I I'm pretty sure we wrote some of Ten Speed while we were on tour for Glazed. I recall writing or re- even recording Pound for Pound in Toronto somewhere. But yeah, I do recall. Uh, we I know we did do some writing on the road. Uh, but then when we finished the tour cycle, we kind of got down to business trying to write 10 speed and we were not getting along like things were just not going well um we fought a lot through making 10 speed what were some of the tensions that you guys are i think part of it was just we were just young we were just kids that's a big part of it we were so young when we got all this sort of put upon us we i don't think we were really i mean i know that we weren't mature enough to deal with things the right way at the time two two kind of big things happened before we got at 10 speed luke decided that he wanted a, a bigger share of the writing credits and i think that i mean we've we've all made our peace with all this we've hashed all of this out so i don't think luke will mind me exposing this um, but and and that that kind of cast a certain feeling, a certain vibe over the making of the record. Yeah, that's gonna be a hard conversation to have. It was a very hard conversation to have, and I don't think any of us were mature enough to handle it the right way. Yeah, and shortly after that, I think we kicked Bean out of the band. And what was the motivation? I, just fighting. We were just fighting all the time, like, and and it it felt, at least to us at the time, that that Bean was somehow the common denominator and all that. So we, I, somewhere on tour, <laughs> Bean's going to hear about this for the first time probably, about how this all went down. We hatched the idea somewhere in Ontario, I think, late one night walking back to the hotel or something. We were like, should we just pull the trigger on this and do it? It was the stupidest, stupidest, stupidest thing we ever did, though, I have to say. It was <laughs> stupid. Yeah, it was I mean, in some ways, I don't. We were we weren't getting anywhere. We were trying to write an album, and we were just literally showing up to rehearsal, getting in a fight, and then everyone would leave, and we were getting <laughs> nothing done. So something had to give, 
uh, unfortunately, in, in our immaturity, we decided that there needed to be a scapegoat. And so Bean became that scapegoat. I mean, it was wrong. It was the stupid thing to do. We got a friend of ours to play with us, a guy named Norm. He's, and he's great. I'm still great friends with Norm. Love him. But it was a bad situation for him to get thrust into, too. He yeah. went from just playing in local bands to all of a sudden, all right, we're writing a record, and then we got to make these videos, and then we're doing interviews, and then we're on the road for a year. Like, I don't think he was prepared for that either. Basically, by the time we, by the time we um, were mixing 10 Speed, Bean was starting to, to be, a, he was almost back in the fold by then. He added some guitar stuff, I think. Did you guys reach out to him, or was it vice versa? I don't remember how it happened. I just remember Bean was at the studio, and I can't imagine that he would just show up. So I think he must have been invited by somebody. Right. I don't really remember how it all went down, but we did. Um, he was by the time we started touring for Ten Speed, he was back in the band. I think. I think the only tours we did with Norm were kind of on the tail end of Glaze. I think he did the deal. We went across Canada with DOA, and I think Norm was in the band for that. And Dean is just lucky he avoided that one because it was not fun. <laughs> yeah, it was a grueling tour. Just uh, too many dates and sh- too short of a time, or just. Uh... That's exactly it. And in the winter, it was like 28 shows in 30 days or something to Halifax. It was insane in October, October, November tour. It was rough. It was a very dark time. And no one gave a shit about DOA at the time either. <laughs> so we'd have a few of our fans there and then a few old crusty punks. And the old crusty punks really didn't like us. We just started trolling them eventually. We would just pull out all our, you know, mid-tempo, slower, just try to send them over the edge. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> a fun tour. Um, we didn't really mix with the DOA guys. They were a lot older than we were. We were a bunch of podheads. They were drinkers. Um, I mean, we drank too, but we just didn't really, we didn't gel as a group. It wasn't, usually when you go on tour or something, you know, you're brothers for life. You spend a month and a month and a bit or whatever you spend with another band, like, you know, you're friends forever, but we never really, I mean, I still, there's only one guy left, honestly, from that, just, just Joe that's still alive from that, uh, that version of, of DOA, Brian, oh, wow. died a few years ago and, and, uh, Ken, the drummer who was. One of the sweetest guys I've ever met. He died in a house fire Jeez. 15 years ago or something like that. Yeah, he was a real sweetheart. He was a lot closer to our age, too. He is the one guy that we actually hung out with. Um, he was a really great guy. No easy way to transition from the story of someone's untimely death. But <laughs> no. um, You mentioned videos uh, with the second record, a uh, brand new song. Um, what, yeah. how did you get, what is the concept? I just rewatched it today, actually, and I still don't understand what's happening. It's cool to watch, but what was the treatment? Yeah. What, was the, what was the pitch? I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know. I don't know. Uh, yeah, we were trapped in a thing, and then some kids busted in and took our shit. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't remember. There probably was some highfalutin <laughs> concept or something that's been lost to the ages. I got. I got brained pretty bad in that making that video, so I don't have. I got oh, really? blocked. Yeah, I, when uh, all those kids poured in, yeah, um, my the headstock of my bass got clunked off of my the side of my head, and I got knocked out cold. So no way. We, yeah, we had to shut down shooting for a, a minute or two there while I uh, 
pulled myself together. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It was a fun day. I met a, I met a, a, a girl there that I stayed friends with for a long time from making that video. I think that's what I got out of that video. I made a friend, Eloisa. She's a cool chick. I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't had no contact with her for a long time, but yeah, I used to hang. The video itself got played a little bit. Much music did kind of... I think it's probably the video we had that maybe got played the most, although I think Underground probably got a few spins too early on there for our first record. Um, we did make another one. We made a... Yeah, we had Pound for Pound for Pound and Brand New Song. Brand New Song got played a bit. Pound for Pound, I think they barely touched. It's actually hard to find. Yeah, you don't even have a copy of it? I don't. And I was actually looking for one out of curiosity on the uh, the interwebs the other day and I couldn't I don't know that I came up with anything. It was made by the same people that made the uh the brand new song video. And brand new song was was, was nominated for, for MMVA, is that right? Yeah, I mean we didn't we didn't go or anything. I, oh, okay. I just recall someone mentioning that to me at the time. Like, oh you're up for a thing and yeah, yeah, I know. I guess again we we weren't any good at playing the industry game. I don't know. Not to me, I guess to us just felt like part of the industry game. And we just sort of like just kind of shrugged it off and kept writing and touring and doing whatever was happening. I don't recall even watching it or being aware of it being on or anything. Yeah. I mean, it is a much bigger deal now, I guess. Back then it was kind of a small thing. There's no 
pound for pound you mentioned as well did um which ended up on the foxfire soundtrack was that just a network deal or how did that all that was a network thing yeah i mean <laughs> i could honestly spend this entire podcast just bitching i could just bitch <laughs> i'm going to try not to bitch too much but that's one of those things where like often when you get on a soundtrack for something like that it's a pretty good payday for you um but not when your record label is putting it out uh I, I don't think we got anything from that. I don't think I got anything from it at all. The, the cool thing that we did get out of that is that my girlfriend at the time was from Detroit. So she was in Detroit. She was watching uh, MTV. And I guess when they were running that ad, the ad for that movie on MTV, they were using Pound for Pound was the song that played through the ad. Oh, nice. Which was cool. She's like, You're, you guys are on MTV like every 15 minutes right now. And, <laughs> you know, the... The the movie tanked and uh, and that was that that was the end of that. But it's kind of cool. I mean, it's the cool thing. The only the, the lasting thing out of that is that uh, it's an Angelina Jolie movie that still gets played, and we still get a couple cents every now and then from it getting played on TV. So yeah, it's that. Probably better than what Spotify pays you pays you, I'd imagine. Yeah, honestly, I've never seen anything from Spotify or Apple Music or or even iTunes, or any of that stuff. I don't know where any of that money goes. It does not come to any of us. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. With getting a little buzz now with Brand New Song and Pound for Pound being on a soundtrack and whatnot, did you start to get like a little bit more um, confidence from the label? And did, you, did they put you in kind of bigger, bigger situations on bigger tours, or was it still kind of a slow kind of incline? Um, I'm trying to remember the tours we did. The main tour that I remember from that, that album cycle was uh, was with Local H and Salt, and that was like a big that was a full North American tour. What honestly, what really kicked things off in Canada, unfortunately, is when we got back from that Local H Salt tour, that big North American tour. It's just the act of going to America is some stamp of approval that Canada and Canadian media seem to need for whatever reason. Like, yeah, there was more interest when we got back from that tour, media-wise and a little bit fan-wise, I guess. But, yeah, they really seemed to need that. Like, we, we, we had done three tours, or two or three tours across Canada for 10-speed, I think. What, maybe two? I can't remember. We had done some touring for 10-speed already. And it was just kind of, you know, it's fine. We like being on the roads. We love playing live, having a good time. But then when we did that that big North American tour with local H and Salt, all of a sudden it seemed like people were taking us more seriously, you know, having done nothing but played in a different country. And how was the relationships within the band? Um, because they were kind of fragile earlier. Were things kind of ironed out by that point, or did you guys still have some tension? It was there was always a little volatility. <laughs> we were, I mean, we were pretty good. I mean, we're all like the we're all brothers essentially we're still they're still pretty much the best friends that i have really are the guys in the band that's awesome the thing is when things are moving and they're going along and things are happening you just swallow a lot of stuff you know like that whole thing with the restructuring of our percentages for songs and stuff i mean i didn't like it i wasn't happy about it but i was playing in a band and touring and doing it with people that i liked and loved and having a good time so i was like yeah all right i don't like this This isn't perfect but all right let's go 
so for the most part, we were all pretty passive aggressive. You know, you're it's for the greater good. You're swallowing some stuff along the way. I do recall a couple of fist fights. I think Bean punched Luke out once in Jeez. Wawa. Yeah, it was a really long drive. It was one of these terrible, you know, I think we were on our way to North Bay from Winnipeg. So we were kind of somewhere in the middle of a 32-hour drive or whatever. And I think Bean was tying his shoe. It jumped out of the van, was tying his shoe, like bent over tying his shoe. And Luke jumped out and went to give him a little, like, slap on the back as he jumped out. But, you know, just jumping out of a van in the force and whatever. And yeah. hit him a lot harder than he expected to or meant to, I think. And Bean kind of wheeled around and just punched Luke in the face. And... uh <laughs> And me and Jordan just kind of looked at each other and we're like, uh, breakfast? Right, let's go. <laughs> and that was that. But yeah, there'd be the odd fist fight. I think Jordan punched Luke at some point. I think in Toronto, maybe Jordan and Luke had some kind of physical altercation. Me and Bean had a few. I remember having a kicking fight with Bean in the van once, just purely <laughs> over territory. He wanted to sit where I was sitting. Some stupid juvenile shit like that, you know. Um, you go a little stir crazy for the most part we drank a lot and we smoked a lot of pot and we had a really good time on the road I like I mean speaking for myself I loved being on the road different people every day different city every day seeing the continent playing our music every night it was couldn't be beat it was fantastic I'd get in the van tomorrow did you guys ever get the um, the push to go over to Europe or anything like that? You mentioned a Swedish band. No, that really really kills me that we didn't. All our records came out in Europe. Um, we have a Stain EP that only came out in Europe. How does that happen? How does a Chilliwack band only have yeah. an EP? How does yeah, that exactly. <laughs> and how do we not go there? I don't I don't understand how we never went there. Uh, I I know it's something that we we didn't we didn't really push for it like i think you kind of with network you really had to like you had to fight your fight or they weren't gonna do it like yeah i don't know i don't know why we never did i just think it, it would have been great i think you know when you go to the states you get more acceptance in canada i think going to europe is even another kind of stamp of approval um i think it would have helped us here too um i think that we would have gone over really well in europe uh kind of bums me out that we never did I don't know why we never did. All our albums came out there. We see we got good reviews there. Our sales were like decent over there. I don't know. I don't know why it never happened. Yeah, it was too cheap, I guess. <laughs> now transitioning into the third record. Now this um, is quite the departure. Like even just visually, I mean, you look at the first two album covers, and you look at yeah. Head First. That's a complete departure. You know, the sound, the production, and describe maybe. What was going on with that third record? Was that a conscious decision on your guys' part? Was that outside forces telling you that you have to do this to get to that next level? Well, for the third record, we first thing, we wrote a lot of music for the third record. I think we demoed 50-plus songs. We had a lot of songs for it. So Networks basically said, we want to give you the big push on this album. This is the big push album. It's the third album. Hmm. So in order for us to give you the big push, you're going to have to do some things for us. Hmm. It's funny you mentioned that album art, that that was one of the things we had to do for them. They wanted our faces on it, which is something that they always wanted and we always fought. We never wanted to be 
never wanted our big stupid faces on the cover <laughs> of a record. I don't think anybody needs our big stupid faces on the cover <laughs> of a record. Um, but yeah, that's something they wanted. So, and that was something that doesn't, that it's not hard for us to change. We don't have to change how we play or anything to do that. We were like, fine, put our faces on the cover. We'll do that. <laughs> the second thing, or the second thing was, is that they wanted to have a bigger stake in picking the songs. And so that's kind of represented there too. Now we wrote those songs. Luke has always had that pop sensibility in him. It's always been a balance. Uh, with the third record, those more of those songs are what ended up on the record. We actually wrote a great record, a great interim record that we called Binge. <laughs> and it, it was one week, I think. We wrote it, recorded it, and mixed it all in like one, four, or five day like, I mean, straight session. Oh, wow. So we called it Binge. Uh, you can read all sorts of things into that. They are all probably correct. <laughs> um, and what, where is that record now? It just shelves? And... Yeah, it's somewhere. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if anything from the Binge, from that Binge thing ended up on the final album. I don't remember. My memory is so fuzzy these days. Um, it, they may have, but it was one of it was one of those things where Rick was like, "If this was your first record, I maybe uh, Rick Arboyd, our in our guy, he was, he said, you know, if this was our first kick, if this was going to be the first record, then I might consider putting this out as your first record. Um, but this is not going to be your third record. I remember uh, we were good friends with the Treble Charger guys, and we had them over to the studio one day, and we played them binge. And I think their main comment, their main takeaway was like, "Wow, guys, that's dark." <laughs> and it was it was dark and weird and fucked up and we were dark and weird and fucked up at that time <laughs> so yeah and, but anyway getting back to the the main the main gist they they wanted they wanted a, a, something they could sell they wanted a record they could sell so we did write the songs they picked them they picked the easier to sell songs but then when all was said and done uh, and we also recorded it at uh, Brian Adams' uh, warehouse or mixed it there, recorded it at various places. So they were spending the money. Like we spent like, I don't know, like $200,000 on that third record. Oh, wow. Which is insanity. It's insanity. Yeah, I think our, our very last record with uh, that we put out recently, I think with uh, Sonic Onion, I think the budget for that one was $5,000. <laughs> It was all recorded and stuff anyway, but you can make the fine record for five thousand dollars these days. Yeah. So two hundred thousand was insane. But anyway, so then the album is done. We deliver the album to network. They don't hear any hits still, despite the fact that they did kind of stick their noses in that record a lot. And we can either go on tour or we can make a video. That's that's huh. our choice at the end of it. They don't hear a single. You get one tour or one video. Which do you want to do? So we took the obvious choice, which was to go on the road and play the songs for the people. And and so we, I, you know, that that album really, I mean, I I like I like a lot of that record. There was some fun times making that record, but it was, you know, we did make concessions for them with putting our faces on the cover, and we did we played ball, and then they took the ball and went home at the end of the day. They, you know. It didn't come back how it was supposed to. 
they kind of just pulled the rug out from it. And uh, they, they were also our management network was. And they dropped us from management about a month before the record was supposed to come out. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I mean, it's the kind of, it's a pretty bitter period. It was, it was pretty bad. We, we uh, got in a pretty bad accident on the freeway on that tour in Ohio. And we killed, I think, three deer. Oh, wow. And if it wasn't for the fact that Jordan was driving and pretty much did all of our driving, and just kept going straight through this herd of deer that we came around the corner and were confronted with. Uh, if he had touched the brakes, I mean, we were hauling a big trailer. So it, it, I think if anyone else is driving, I'm probably not talking to you right now. That's kind of my assumption. I think we probably all would have would have been dead, or at least some of us would have been. But anyway, the long and the short of it is, is that after that, we had a a destroyed van. We were in Ohio. We called network the next morning saying, Hey, we're kind of fucked. And they're like, Oh yeah. We're like, yeah, we're in Ohio. <laughs> we don't have a van. We have a tour to finish. What are we supposed to do? Yeah. And they were like, I don't know. Like they wouldn't do anything for us. So luckily there were some good people on the network team. I mean, that's the thing. There's a lot of great people that worked at network. Um, it's just the people holding the purse strings in regards to us held on to them very tightly. Um, a network rep from Toronto drove up. I think it was, I believe it was a Critchley van from uh, 13 engines. Yeah. John Critchley. Yeah. I think it was his van. Anyway, drove that up, picked us up and allowed us to finish the remaining dates on that tour. And, uh, we did have to cancel a bunch. It sucks too because we loved playing Montreal. We had a great, always had good shows in Montreal. And uh, I'd had an incident with the uh, the promoter there. And I think he got his revenge on me that night because he let the club fill up. And then at the last minute told everyone that we just didn't show up where we had called him three days before and said that we, you know, we were, weren't going to make that show. Oh, wow. That's dirty. So it was very dirty. What was the incident that he was pissed about? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, that was, we were, what was it? I can't remember what tour. It was on 10 speed, I think. And our road manager, Fab, he had left. And he said, uh, before he left, he said, I want to take off. If you're going to hang out and party, do you want to just settle off with the guy at the end of the night? And I said, sure, I'll, I'll handle it. I was drinking. So I let the guy know that uh, I was the one to settle up with tonight when it comes time and he's like, yeah, cool. And the night went on and went on and went on. And, and, uh, every now and then I would just kind of give him a wave, you know, whenever you're ready kind of thing. And, uh, I was in no hurry. I was drunk. I was having a good time. I was in Montreal and, uh, and then started getting really late. Show was long over at this point. I was still felt like I was not in any big hurry, but it was getting really late. And I was just like, Hey, I'm ready whenever you are to settle. And then he just laid into me for whatever reason. I don't know what was going on with his life at that time or why he decided to explode on me at that moment. I thought I was being pretty cool about the whole thing, but uh, he walked away and uh, I threw a bottle as close to his head as I could throw a bottle. I I was a maker of rash decisions back then. And that was (laughs) one of those rash decisions that, that I made at that moment. So I did call and apologize when I got home. I found out from management and from these other people that he was kind of pissed about getting a ball thrown at him. In my defense, 
if I wanted to hit the guy with the bottle, I would have hit the guy with the bottle. I got a pretty good throw. <laughs> I missed him on purpose. He's lucky. <laughs> but anyway, I apologize. I thought we were all good. And then I'm pretty sure he's the same guy that let the club fill up and then told everyone that we just skipped out on the show and didn't show oh, up. Wow. So anyway, you know, if anyone's listening from Montreal and you were at that show in, I think, 98, maybe early 99, I apologize. The van was totaled. And the shitty thing is we've never been back. That was it. That was it for Touring Canada. That was it. It was over. Network was done with us. It was Jeez. all over. We never went back out. The only other tour we did after that, um, kind of in that cycle, was when uh, um, the hip took us to San Francisco, and we did a handful of shows out there with them. Tell me that experience. That's pretty unique. It was great. I'd kind of heard through the grapevine that Gord was a fan, and we were we were playing in Toronto. Uh, I, think we, I think we were playing at Lee's Palace, and our buddy Jose in Vitavine Wright, Right. Was at a table with Gord and uh, introduced me, introduced us. And then we brought him backstage and we hung out, like me and Gord and Jose and whoever else was around the time. I can't remember who else was there. I think the drummer for Head, whoever was at the time, I think was there too. Anyway, we hung out, we smoked weed, we drank, we had fun. And then like three, four months later or something like that, we got a call from from the hip management or whoever that they wanted to, they were doing these, they were doing one tiny show, tiny club show at the place called the bottom of the hill club in San Francisco. And then they were doing two bigger, like a, like 1500, 2000 seat venues in, uh, in San Fran. And they wanted to know if we would go and open for them. So we did. Hmm. It was fantastic. It was really, it was funny how, uh, how important it, or how great or how satisfying it was to get the, the, the stamp of approval from, from someone like Gord at that time when things were clearly like done, like shit was over for us with our the record label anyway. And to have him come along and, and, you know, sort of validate us in that way. Like I was never a huge hit fan or anything, but uh, I, I think they got better with every record they did. So by the end, I was I was a fan, and like just what awesome guys! They're just fantastic, and Gord is was a, a rare a rare beast. That's cool that you got to that you got to have that connection with them at least uh, for a short time. That's pretty. Totally, I feel really lucky and blessed to have had that that experience with them for sure. And just to put the uh, button on head first, I really dig that track, Doubter. Who did the uh, guest vocals on that tune? That was Luke's then wife. Oh, wow. She's great. They sound yeah. so good together. Uh, she did a bunch of backup vocals on that record. And she didn't do anything like... Uh... No, she didn't have... Uh, me and Luke and her had a little uh, short-lived side project called Beluga that we did for a little while um, that she sang for. Um, but yeah, not much. The, she, she did some vocals on that. Yeah, I'm not sure what she's up to these days. Your friends won't tell you what's so 
So when the network relationship ended, what was the uh, the next plan for you guys? What were the conversations you were having as a band? We had done some things that happened. We um, after that little hit tour, we went down to we played L.A. right after that. We had a show booked at the Viper Room, sort of be like a showcase type show. By the way, in uh, a little aside about how great the hip are, we got a bunch of guitars stolen at those shows in San Fran. Oh, no way. And we were going to have to cancel going to L.A. because, the, you know, they blew our budget. The network was not giving us one more cent. So we had to spend money to rent more guitars because we got some stolen while we were there. And uh, the hip came through and gave us an extra 500 bucks so that we could go do this show oh, in L.A. Wow. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. So anyway, we go down, we do the show in L.A. It's just fucking stupid. It's, you know, playing the Viper Room to a bunch of suits. It was kind of pointless. It was fun. We went to L.A., you know, traveling, seeing stuff, hanging out, drinking, had fun. <laughs> um, career-wise, it went nowhere. Um, and we also, we did CMJ, the, uh, the big New York festival, music fest. And we had had some interest from Interscope at the time. Oh, wow. So we were playing, we were doing a show, and Buddy was supposed to come down. He was going to try to get all the Interscope guys to come down. They were really going to try to make a big push to, to sign us. And then it turned out that the, the Interscope's own um, party or night or whatever, their thing was at the same time as ours was. So not even the guy that was trying to sign us showed up at our show. Oh, geez. And uh, Luke's guitar amp got stolen sometime between sound check and going on stage. So we basically walked on stage and we're like, oh, we we're missing a guitar amp. And you only get a half an hour. You got a half an hour. I don't care what you do with your half an hour. You got a half an hour. <laughs> and what we did with most of our half hour was try to find another guitar amp for Luke at the last second. Oh, geez. So I think we went all the way to New York, and I think we played like three songs. That's just another nail, hey? Oh, yeah. We did go meet with the guys, and I believe it was a, a meeting with Interscope. They took us out to some fancy, fancy schmancy bar, that, that uh, the place that had a lot of leather, and, uh, <laughs> and it, it had these big, giant, like, leather tables that had these, like, big silver buttons on them. And what I, what I recall that, that we took away from that meeting was a lot of those little silver buttons. <laughs> we were like trying to see how many we could screw off of the table and jam in our <laughs> pockets. I don't recall any business being discussed. I remember getting really, really hammered and then rolling down the stairs. Oh no. So we wanted to make another record, but, as far as like doing things that you need to do to make another record that are outside of making music, we just weren't good at it. We just, it was just an opportunity to get drunk on someone else's dime. I, I don't recall there being any business discussed whatsoever. That's not to say that it didn't happen, but I don't remember it. I remember getting trashed. I remember going back to one of their, their rooms. I remember emptying, his little bar fridge. Uh, I remember Dean, who was playing with us at the time, climbing out of our window and going out one window and in another window on like the 13th floor or the 14th oh, floor of geez. our hotel. I remember lots of alcohol. 
I don't remember any business being discussed. And then the last thing, the last sort of attempt was someone flew up. I can't remember if it was Interscope or if it was American or who it was, but they flew up to see us here in Vancouver and we had conversations and that was about it. Never went anywhere. They were like, oh, I want to do this. I want to re-release your last record. I want to, you know, the problem is it, it takes more than just one person from a label being into you. They, so one person likes you, they got to go back to that label and convince a whole bunch of other people to get on board. And, you know, and at that time, this is, we're talking like 99, 2000 now, the wheels are coming off the whole scene. You know, the clubs are closing. It's just, it's over. The whole scene is just over. It's just done. What do you think, what do you think led to the, uh, was it just the turning of the calendar or was it? It's just, things just shift, you know, there's a new generation comes up and this thing that exists now isn't their thing. And so they find their own thing. And then that becomes the thing. And then it just keeps going like that, you know? It's just the, the cycle. You know, when when uh, indie, grunge, alternative, whatever you want to call it, you know, metal was ruling the day. And, we, you know, I certainly uh, loved Motley Crue and all that kind of stuff when I was in grade 8 or 9. But as I got a little older, like grade 10, 11, you know, I got it to Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Jr. This is my music now. So, mm. And then that became the big, popular scene there for the next 10 years or so and then the next generation of kids who are 15 16 17 that's not that's not their music necessarily so they find their own thing and then you know cyclical kind of always done that i think Mm -hmm. it was just a natural thing that happened but we kept we kept writing we never really stopped like we we kept writing and rehearsing we kept our rehearsal space like we kind of pretended like nothing had changed Hmm. kept writing kept recording kept doing shows until we realized that we were going to have to do something with those songs and that's where it really broke down for us because we never we never sent anything out like even when even after we knew network was interested and we went saw a lawyer and we were doing all that. There was a lot of time between getting that deal and signing that deal. And the idea is, I guess, is that you then go to other labels and go, well, you know, this is what we've been offered. You know, are you interested? I, I think that's what you're supposed to do. But we didn't. We just were like, hey, these guys want to sign us. So let's do it. <laughs> like we, we just weren't business savvy. We were just happy to be there, kind of. And we liked Network. Me and Luke were Network fans. We, we liked the Grapes of Wrath, and we, I really liked MC 900 with Jesus. I liked things that they had, you know. We liked Sarah McLaughlin. They had good acts. Like, not necessarily that were uh, bands that connected with us uh, musically, but bands that we liked, though. And uh, and we respected them, because we didn't know any better. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, we, we didn't, we never shopped anything around ever, so when all was said and done, and Network was done with us, and we were still writing songs we we didn't know what to do with it next we were like all right we have these songs all right so anybody that stops by my house i've got got these songs you can hear that's it that's (laughs) that's our distribution whoever passes through my living room got to hear it but we never did anything we never shopped it around we never sent it anywhere we never did anything and then you know time goes by and 
what happens when you've been a passive aggressive band for so long is that those little those little things that that kind of bothered you but you just kind of overlooked at first just become bigger things and so eventually you're just like man i don't i don't want to i don't want to see you anymore i don't want to be in a room with you i don't want to be in a van with you i don't want to do this anymore like me and luke became friends going into grade 10 and we were best friends through high school we started a band together we got signed together we went on the road together we quite often lived together and eventually you just need a break from people we had just spent a whole lot of time in super close quarters and just got sick to death of each other i think and i i think we went quite a while like we went a bunch of years without having any real contact and where it was wasn't necessarily ugly but i didn't really have much nice to say about anybody i just you know, I was kind of over all of it i was mad i was bitter i was pissed off that it was over i was pissed off at the record label i was pissed off at luke i was just pissed off and it took some time to like to look back and reflect and mature to grow to kind of see everything for what it was for like the great experience that it was and also to you know to forgive the record label for what i thought that they did wrong to forgive luke for what i thought he did wrong and me and luke got together one night probably in the mid to late 2000s and hashed through like 20 years of shit between us oh wow and it was great and we've been solid ever since i mean things that i didn't know at the time was that the label was telling luke to ditch us oh and wow that's when he came that's when he came up with uh well i think i should get a bigger cut i mean i can't blame him if you know he's he's 20 and a record label that he respects is telling him you don't need these guys you could just ditch this band and you could you could take all the money it could all be yours you could you don't need them Jeez. So in his defense, he, he didn't agree with that. He didn't agree that he could just do it without us. But right. but he did think that he should take more. And yeah, I mean, sure. I he did he did deserve more. I, I just think that we didn't handle the breakdown of how things did go. I don't think we handled it well and we've all made up and and we've actually reversed all of those old uh royalty breakdowns oh wow we're all even steven again yeah i mean luke's apologized for his part of it and i think i've apologized for my part of it I, no one handled anything well we were kids we didn't know what we were doing we were happy to be there we like you know we didn't have the necessary tools it's funny i was listening to the todd kearns podcast your uh one that you did a couple weeks okay. ago cool thank you yeah, and just listening, and, and, and I guess it's the same thing with uh, Mike from the Killjoys. Those guys were older. Like, they had been through it. They had been in the, this world for a while. Like, they had been in the music world for a while. You know, Age of Electric had toured for years, and, uh, and it sounds like Mike had done a bunch of stuff before that, too. We, we essentially had our first gig, I think, in 1991, we signed in 92 and put our first album out in 93. It's fast. It's fast. We were young. And so, and, and, and with network, you know, they, I think they did 
a lot of things wrong. I, I'm still a little bitter, but ultimately they, they put out three albums of ours. I mean, I know lots of guys that signed to majors back then. It was one and done. You got one record. Even if it does okay, you're not getting a second one. It has to go amazingly well. You have to sell a ton of them to, to get a follow-up. Whereas we got to make three records, and they, for the most part, left us alone. You know, I, can, I feel like I can mostly stand by the, the three full lengths we made for Network. It's, it's us. So you briefly mentioned it earlier, but uh, you did do a fairly recent release on Sonic Engine. So well, what is the status with the band these days? Are you still um, writing, playing gigs? Yeah, I mean, when stuff comes up, we take it. Uh, we, um, we did some Billy Talent shows a few years ago. It's about 20, 2015, 2014, something like that. So fans, Ian's a big fan. It's a whole band are, and they're really great guys. And they said, Hey, you guys want to do some shows with us? And there's two shows in Calgary and a show in Vancouver and they were all sold out. And they're like, yeah, hell yeah. Let's go play some 1500 T places. You know, it's, yeah. I mean, and that, again, that's also part of me coming to terms with all of it. It's like, I get to do that. It's like, we don't, we don't do shows to, we don't, we don't do shitty little local shows to a hundred people or whatever, because we're just not, that interested in doing it. it's hard to get all of us together in a room it's like a big production to get everyone pointed <laughs> in the same direction but when someone comes along and is like hey we've got like a bunch of like pretty decent shows we're like yeah fuck yeah let's do it let's go play to five thousand people in three nights with billy town and they're great guys and we have a great time with them and uh, right before the summer we opened for uh, bob mold out here I mean, to be able to open for Bob Mould, Husker Du is like, that's ground zero for us. Like, that's where <laughs> it all started. Like, Husker Du. Husker Du was my gateway music to everything that I love today. Like, you know, My Bloody Valentine, Sonic Youth, Tennessee Jr. Husker Du were the first band. That was the band that told me, hey, there's something that you're not seeing out here that you're not ever going to see out here. It's like over here underground, you know, it's like this <laughs> hidden thing. You got to look for it and find it. And yeah, that's, that was crazy. After all the years that we've been in the band and all we've been through and everything to, I mean, if that's our last show, that's fantastic to, to be able to play with like one of our heroes. I mean, we've played huge shows. We've opened for Ozzy at Rogers arena. We've done like big shows, but to open for somebody that affected our lives. So, you know, it's crazy. It was crazy. It was weird. It was some, it's like, I was never nervous for shows, but uh, me and Luke were both like nauseous before we opened for Bob Mold. I, yeah. So, uh, as you know, I've been asking all the guests to pick three songs, um, from the 90s material they have on Spotify, two kind of quote unquote hits and one kind of deep cut you think deserves a little bit more attention. How would you like Mr. Machine to be represented on the playlist? Yeah. I mean, I, I have, I have put some thought into this because I knew this, question was coming <laughs> the hits are easy because there aren't any so that really leaves it at at uh, i think pound for pound i think that's kind of you know one of those songs that we're sort of remembered for ride is the other kind of easy one because that's probably the most requested one live people always want to hear ride the deep cut is harder yeah because uh, most of our songs <laughs> most of our catalog is deep cut <laughs> and that I think, you know, and and a lot of them I, I think are really great too, that just never really got the recognition they deserved. Uh I think I settled on invitation. 
options. Well, nice. I think that's where I landed. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today and to chatting and tell us everything there is to know about Mystery Machine, man. That was fucking awesome, dude. No, well, thank you. So, I'm so stoked that you're doing this. Kind of thankless, just like it was playing in a band in the 90s. is largely <laughs> hard and thankless. Um, little reward, other than just the reward of, of uh, a few people going, hey, this is great. Yeah, well, the reward is just to be able to talk to people like you and hearing the stories and hearing what it was like, because I was... You know, I was one of the guys in the crowd during all those times. So it's kind of cool to hear what it was like to be one of the guys on the stage during that time. So it means a lot to have you guys, you know, share your time with me. I was absolutely stoked to do it. Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven's Rule. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so in a variety of ways. First, you can go to patreon.com slash become a patron, get access to deleted audio, get advanced notes of the guests, and get a chance to submit questions to those guests for an exclusive Patreon Q&A. Visit redbubble.com, search Rave Drool, and you can buy various goods with the Raven Drool podcast logo on it. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to this. And if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more Naughty's Can Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself, the tracks that I've selected. But as you heard during today's episode, eventually, it'll be curated by the guests themselves. Until next time, friends, take care.